So you probably know by now that in February, my new book was released. So Scripture and the Skeptic, which is this book right here, was released uh, everywhere books are sold. And, and, uh, and, and I'm really um, thrilled to see people reading it and mostly, mostly enjoying it. And um, you don't have to read the book, however, to understand these messages that I'm preaching. So I'm basically preaching eight messages on the eight chapters of the book. Because in each chapter, I ask a different question about the Bible because skeptics have all kinds of doubts and questions about the Bible. And it's important to me that we, uh, that we explain what the Bible is and what it isn't. And so um, today's question's a doozy. Today's question, we're in part six of the series. This is actually from chapter seven of the book. I'll explain that in a minute. It's, can we talk about Leviticus? All right, so this is the most controversial chapter in the book. It's the one that I'm pretty sure eventually will have my book deplatformed from Amazon eventually, <laughs> as soon as they find out what it says. And, and it's, it's not easy to preach. But we're talking about chapter seven ahead of chapter six because next week we'll talk about race and the Bible. And I'll be, uh, we'll be joined by a, a very special guest to, to talk us through that. And so I hope that you'll, uh, you'll tune in for that as well. So let's, let's just hit it head on, okay? Let's talk about Leviticus. I know everybody woke up this morning, you lost an hour of sleep, you roll out of bed. I can't wait to hear about Leviticus today. I understand your enthusiasm. Um, no, the truth is, Leviticus is almost everyone's least favorite book of the Bible. Um, Revelation might give it a run for its money, but Leviticus is right up there. And it's because Leviticus can be such a gut punch to sensible 21st century Western folks. It can be so hard to get through it because it, it just feels, um, it feels confusing at best. Demoralizing, I think is the word, I would say, especially newcomers to the Bible that's the word that describes their feelings about Leviticus. Because if you don't know what you're reading, it can be really off-putting. So I want to talk about that a little bit today. Because, look, Leviticus is just one of 66 books in the Bible. Uh, in, my, in my book about the Bible, it's one of eight chapters. So that's how important it is to me that people understand Leviticus and it's because Leviticus, more than any other book, is brought up in conversations with skeptics, by skeptics, who say, I can't believe the Bible because Leviticus. And you'll never hear any Christian go, I became a Christian because of Leviticus. <laughs> so no one really understands it or appreciates it. And I think it is such an important book in the Bible. So what are we talking about when we talk about Leviticus? First of all, when we look at Leviticus, we see that it is the third book, not only the third book in the Bible, it is the third book in the Torah. The five-book set of uh, the books of Moses that start the Old Testament off, that lay a foundation uh, for the Old Testament. So when the, when the Bible talks about the law of God, it's usually talking about the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And with any Hebrew literature, the structure of the thing always matters. And so when you look at this structure, what you see is two books over here that have similar tone, and two books over here that have similar tone and one book in the middle that stands out. And Leviticus is in the middle of this movement of God from chaos found in Genesis and Exodus to the order that's found in Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so from the moment that Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit in Genesis chapter three, chaos ensued in the human race and deepened and worsened. Things were out of control. If you ever read the book of Genesis, it's just 
chaos. You've got brothers selling their brother. You know, you've got Sodom and Gomorrah. You've got all this chaos happening in Genesis. And then it gets worse in Exodus as the people of God are forced into slavery when they're in Egypt. All right, so that's when you reach peak chaos. Now, God is in the business and always has been in the business of bringing order out of chaos. It's what he does, all right? Where God shows up, order is brought out of chaos. And what you see in the last two books of the Torah, Numbers and Deuteronomy, absolute order. Read it. It's so orderly, it's boring. (laughs) Like it's just one list after another. There's a to-do list. There's a things to bring to the promised land list. There's a who's who list. There's a tribes list. There's all kinds of lists. Order, 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 order. But before they got here, they were here in the chaos and God had to find a way to bridge where they were to where he wanted them to be because he knew he had big plans for them, promised land and, and the people of the promise and all of that. But before he could show them that, he needed to, to first show them how to order their lives. And so that's what Leviticus is. It is a bridge between chaos and order. And I'll just say this real quick. Most of us, maybe not most, some of us need Leviticus in this way more than we might care to admit because some of us still find ourselves drawn to chaos. Not all of us, some of you are super organized type A people, but if you're like me, chaos is, is, is kind of tempting. Because um, chaos, I mean, if we're real, uh, really honest about it, chaos always offers you the excuse to underachieve and underperform. If your life is chaos, you can just say, oh, I'm so busy, so many, I'm tired, so many emails. Sorry, I didn't get your email. I, I just, just too much going on. That's one of the best things about having small children is that your life is so chaotic, you can get out of anything. That's what I did when I had small kids, you know, used them as an excuse. Did I say it's the best thing? It's one of the best things about having children. There's other good things, but it's one of the the best things. It's because we're drawn to chaos, but the more we get to know the heart of God, the more we see he is a God who brings order out of our chaos, all right? So that's, I, I think that's one important factor when we look at Leviticus. Now, it's not, the, it's not the only thing. There's, there's other things going on in Leviticus. I mean, the, the, maybe the, the most um, common sentiment about Leviticus, if I asked you to characterize it in one word, would probably be something like just that it's, if you've read it, it's just weird. Like Leviticus is weird. It's strange. It's off-putting. And this comes from a few different places. I've sort of categorized the weirdness of Leviticus into three different categories, and I want to walk us through some of this today. So the, the first category of Levitical weirdness is all the animal sacrifice. Like, oh, why did all these animals have to die? And why is half of Leviticus God basically instructing the people how to kill this animal and how to kill that animal and how to kill this animal? If you read it, it feels really kind of creepy and God seems bloodthirsty. How do we make sense of this? So Leviticus opens up chapter one with this very thing. Check out this passage from Leviticus one, verses four through nine, where where it's written, you are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering. It will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord And then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood 
and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. It's another way of saying tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Whoa. All right, so how do we make sense of something like this? This is tough sledding for people who are animal lovers. Especially when you read time after time, one, one thing like this after another, and, and you just kind of want to clutch your pearls a little bit and go, my heavens. <laughs> you know. And I think before we get there, maybe, maybe part of getting over this is just getting over ourselves a little and realizing that unless you're like some kind of strict vegan, like you still participate in a, a ritual of animal sacrifice daily. Like maybe you don't go to the slaughterhouse. That's just because like capitalism, the miracle or, or whatever, I don't know. Like you, you might not go to the chicken coop, you know, but you've, you've separated some poor mother hens from their unborn children and you made your omelets, right? You've, you've participated in the dismemberment of living creatures for your own sake. We're not that far removed from the days of animal sacrifice. We've just traded off one God for another. It used to be Yahweh, and now it's my belly. You know? <laughs> now it's me who receives it. And, and so I just want to say, maybe we're, maybe we're not as advanced as we like to think we are. Maybe we, we get caught up in our chronological snobbery. And because we don't go to slaughterhouses and do it ourselves, we act like we're not a part of this same kind of system. Like this, this kind of way is a part of what it means to be a human and and part of understanding animal sacrifice in the Bible is also understanding that before, long before the people called Israel were a thing, people the world over in every place were already sacrificing animals ritually, including in Egypt where the Israelites had served as slaves. They saw the Egyptians offering sacrifices like this to their gods. And in every part, on every continent except Antarctica, there's evidence of animals being sacrificed in antiquity. So what then matters is understanding how the thinking around animal sacrifice in Leviticus differed from the thinking in other cultures, okay? So this is where the rubber kind of meets the road on this issue because almost universally, the thinking on animal sacrifices was that uh, something like this, my, my life is hard, I'm suffering. I lost a loved one, I've lost work, whatever, the, the, the harvest is ruined. Like my, my life is hard right now, therefore I must have done something wrong to upset the gods. They're mad at me, I must give them something that they like so that they're, no, they're not mad at me anymore. And if things got better, it's because your sacrifice worked. If things didn't get better, it's because you didn't offer enough, you gotta go back and offer more. If things got better for a time, but then got worse, Afterward, it was only a temporary solution. You got to go back and make another offering. You never really knew where you stood with these gods. And that's how people thought of animal sacrifices. Leviticus doesn't present this situation, this ritual that way. It's not about appeasing the anger of the gods. It's not about the aroma wafting up to heaven in the hopes that the gods who live at a distance might smell what we're offering. Leviticus tells the story of a God who chose to dwell among the people. He set up shop. He, he called for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, to be like a nomadic, transportable uh, uh, house, a dwelling place for God to live among 
the people. So the problem in Leviticus isn't that God is at a distance and we must get his attention with this sweet smell and barbecue down here. The problem in Leviticus is that God's presence is among us and we must be accommodating. We must be hospitable to God's presence because the presence of God is so pure, or as Leviticus says, holy, that it cannot coexist with the kind of decay and death brought on by sin. And so in Leviticus, there is this, there is this belief that our sin opened up the door for death, darkness, and depravity, and that those things are, are, are the opposites of the nature of God. And if we want God to feel at home with us, we must do something to cleanse ourselves, to uh, recompense our debt, to, to, you know, atone. And that's what animal sacrifices mean. Like one thing that, one thing that freaks people out is the blood. Why? Okay, we get the sacrifice part and the cooking of the meat. Why did they paint the walls of the place with blood? What's with that? It just seems like a serial killer movie or something. Like, what? it's creepy. Why put the blood everywhere? Listen, maybe to us it might seem that way, but in the ancient world, it was believed that blood was the life force. If you had blood pumping through your veins, you were alive. If your blood was poured out, you were dead. And so blood was the symbol of life. And so they symbolically used this life force as a kind of detergent to cover up the decay of sin so that God would feel at home because he is the God of life, right? So all of this is rich with symbolism. Another part of, of sacrifice and the sacrificial system that is lost on us because most of us have never been shepherds or goat herders is what that must have been. I think, I think I've always had this image of people just standing in line with some random animal they found, maybe on the side of the road or just some extra animal they had. <laughs> okay, take it. I'm good now. Have a receipt. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Listen, these guys... Their animals, maybe not, maybe they weren't like pets to them, but their animals were precious to them. And if you've ever known shepherds, farmers, goat herders, cattlemen, like they named their animals. Many of them helped birth their, these animals. And so to watch an animal that's yours pay the price for your sin, I think it did a couple of things. There's something Truly dramatic about having to look the consequences of your sin in the eyes. And I can only imagine that in the aftermath of that experience, the farmer, the goat herder, the shepherd, when faced with temptation the next time, might think twice. There's something gracious about being able to look the consequence of your sin in the eye. Think about the alternative to that. It's never knowing what your sin causes. And so there was some grace in this as well. All right, so there, there's, I know, it's, I know it's a strange thing, but, um, but I think we can kind of start to make sense of this. Now, the obvious question remaining for the skeptic is, hey, I've read the Bible, animal sacrifices. I listened to Pastor Eric's sermon. He said the whole Bible matters. Why aren't we doing this anymore? Why isn't Pastor Eric coming to church with some kind of meat cleaver 
and an apron. Listen, the job description has changed, all right? And I, I thank God for that. I don't think I could do it. I get queasy with nosebleeds. But, but we have to account for the seeming inconsistency because, you know, why aren't, why aren't we, if the Bible tells us to do this, why are we not doing this? And it really comes down to the fact that Leviticus is one part of a greater story. And when you read the whole Bible and Leviticus within the Bible, you see that Jesus represented on the cross the end of our need for sacrifice. Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. His death was the last necessary sacrifice. And this is, this is articulated better than I could by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, who said, for since the law, the Torah, has but a shadow of the good things to come, the gospel, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, in other words, this is like a stopgap measure, the animal sacrifices. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins." But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those being sacrificed, being sanctified, sorry. So What does this mean? Does it mean that the sacrificial system was like a big mistake and all those animals never really had to die? (laughs) Like, are they just collateral damage for our misinterpretation? No, no, he's saying that for a time, that's that's how we, in a stopgap kind of way, accounted for our sins and and learned our lesson. But what what it's really saying here is that in light of the sacrifice of Christ, these sacrifices of animals are no longer, they're, they're just superfluous. Because the blood of God, royal blood, infinitely worthy blood has already been poured out. How much more value could the blood of a goat add? Nothing. You can't add to infinity. Okay, so the the idea here is that Jesus was the once and for all. And so we are in light of Christ and his cross free because our sin has been dealt with. And whatever devotion we show to God, even the sacrifices we offer to God, are but a response to the grace already freely received and not a bargain for it. See the difference? Okay. So um, I, I, know, I know sacrifice is super weird. I think it's possible to get through it. The second area of weirdness in the book of Leviticus, I think, is just the, the, the lists of weird rules and punishments for things that just seem out of control. And uh, Joe Vitale talked about this in the clip last Sunday that I played, but this, the punishment just don't seem to fit the crimes and some of the crimes just don't seem that bad. And what are we looking at when we look at these rules about like, if you have mold in your house, if you have mildew in your house, you must do this to clean it. If someone has a spot on their skin, they must be dealt with. 
you know, if, and all the rules around like immigration and slavery, we'll talk about those rules next week a little bit, and, and all kinds of regulations around disease control, communicable diseases. Um, you know, in that way, like Leviticus is pretty special, actually. It's the first book of its kind that offered a comprehensive health code. Doctors today marvel at their knowledge of communicable diseases in a pre-scientific world. That's pretty cool, all right? But, but still, it seems a little bit cruel and unusual to do to people what Moses called to do to people that had symptoms. So check this out. This is from Leviticus uh, chapter 13. This is the prescription. Anyone dealing with a defiling disease must wear torn clothes. Let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone and they must live outside the camp. Like they're already sick. Why are we going to make them live it alone and cover half their face and have messed up hair and clothes. This used to be a real problem for me. Not so much anymore, I find. Not since a year ago this week when everything shut down and all of life went on Zoom. It didn't matter what pants you were wearing or if you were wearing. (laughs) As long as you had a decent shirt on. You know, nobody had good hair in 2020. We all had two haircuts in 2020. One of them we did ourselves in the mirror. You know, now we're all covering the lower half of our face like they prescribed in Leviticus when there's communicable disease among us and we could be exposed. Now, people that have symptoms are self-quarantining outside the community. The only thing we're missing from that entire passage is sick people going, unclean, unclean. The rest of it's exactly the same. It's like COVID awakened the the, the Leviticus mentality in us. And, and now it seems normal. And if you hear, if you listen to people in the world talk about things like face coverings, and talk about things like social distancing, you'll hear them talking about those things as acts of love. That was the point of Leviticus all along. Whether the rules um, in mind are um, keeping people healthy or keeping them holy, the motivation was love. And I think, I think COVID, one of the graces of the COVID year that we've had is, is that we've gotten a glimpse of that. So I do think it's possible to wrap our heads around some of the weird rules in Leviticus, except, except for when in our modern day estimation, Leviticus crosses the line and starts telling people what to do with their bodies in an intimate sense. And this is where many of us get offended. Many of us, I think one of the only reasons why Leviticus is such a stumbling block for people is because of the rules around what we call coloring at the story. So this euphemism, which is like the oldest tradition ever at the story, uh, from the very beginning, anytime I talk about this kind of intimate stuff, use the word coloring instead of some other word to save you parents from some uncomfortable conversations on the way home. But now they're going to wonder what's wrong with coloring. So you have to explain that. Okay. So it's easier than the alternative. Okay, parents. So these restrictions around coloring. So Leviticus has more prohibitions around coloring behavior than any other book in the Bible. It's not even close. And a lot of us are offended by this. And we think, get out of our bedroom. Like we know better what's good and what's not. Really, we don't even, honestly, in culture, we don't even talk much about what's not other than like 
without consent. Anything with consent is deemed good, generally speaking, in our culture. And when some ancient book comes along and tells us how we're supposed to do that and not do that, it, it just seems really, uh, it, it seems easy to dismiss because it's ancient, archaic, you know, just a bunch of, bunch of men who didn't know any better trying to control people. And so this is the sense that I get around Leviticus's teaching on coloring. And, um, you, you know, I, 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 think it's, I think it's really interesting that when you actually look at the rules around coloring in Leviticus, it doesn't add up that Leviticus is just way out of touch. Because as I pointed out in this chapter, in the big, like, notorious anti-coloring chapter of Leviticus, chapter 18, you have 17 different rules about coloring and not coloring certain ways. And universally, like 100% of us still would agree with 15 of those 17 rules. All right, so how out of touch is it really if uh, 15 of them we agree with? Here, here we go, I'll give you some examples. Verse six, no one is to approach any close relative to color. Amen? You with me? Do not color with your mother. She is your mother. I love that second part. She is your mother. <laughs> Do not color with your stepmother. Yep. Do not color with your sister, granddaughter, stepsister. Verse 12 says, do not color with your aunts. Verse 13, do not color with any of your aunts. Two different rules. <laughs> Verse 14, I mean it, you guys, no aunts. Don't color with your daughter-in-law. Don't color with your sister-in-law. Verse 17, don't color with your mom and a daughter at the same time. Amen? Do you agree? Wife's sister, uh, not allowed, guys. Don't color with your wife's sister. Uh, and then there's uh, no, no coloring with your neighbor's wife. And then there's uh, no coloring with any animals. And, and then there's two more. And one of them I'm not going to mention. It's a little bit... Anyway, y'all can buy the book <laughs> and find it. Anyway, but about more than half of us agree with the 16th rule. And up until very recently, a wide majority of us agreed with the 17th rule. Now, that 17th rule is the sticking point. And if I could just cut to the chase, I'll just share it with you. Like verse 22 of that chapter is that a man shouldn't color with a man like a man might color with a woman, all right? So that's the ground zero in the battle about Leviticus. That verse, this idea, which is, it's repeated another uh, time or two in Leviticus, is the reason why so many would seek to discredit Leviticus entirely. It's because this has been like, it's become sacrosanct. You're not allowed to say what Leviticus says about this particular issue anymore. And look, we're in a different place now, like uh, culturally speaking, the tables have turned a little bit and, and we're hyper protective of people of certain coloring orientations, right? And hear me when I say that we should be based on, I think it's just a pendulum swing back in the other direction because a generation ago, it was common for people, including too many Christians to go out of their way to be cruel to people for whom life was already cruel. 
And so we needed a correction. And I'm not arguing against that. All I am saying is I think we've reached a tipping point, at least in much of the country, when, when I talk to young people who say it's easier for my, people my age to, to come out as LGBTQ than it is to come out as Christian. And that's a common sentiment. I don't think it's just anecdotal. It's borne out in some statistics, very recent studies released in 2020 and early 2021 of Generation Z, So the adults in Generation Z, age 18 to 25, among that group, only one in four are regularly, consistently active in a church, which is much lower than any generation before it. And about one in five, 18 to 25-year-olds identify as LGBTQ, which is far more than any generation before it. I'm honestly not even making a value statement about that. I just want us to recognize how quickly and how um, completely the world has shifted overnight. And, And I think we should be very careful to not, in our chronological snobbery, pass judgment on Leviticus based on some uh, culturally sensitive issues that, um, that have really emerged in the last 30 years, which is the blink of an eye, um, historically speaking. And so what are we supposed to do with this? There's, listen, there's, there's an idea in our culture right now that you cannot love someone without affirming everything about them. And that's just fundamentally false. Like you can genuinely, sincerely love someone without affirming every little thing about them. In fact, you can only love someone that way. Like you can only love someone by being honest with them about the parts of their lives. If you love them, if you know them, not an angry sidewalk preacher guy, but about the stuff you see in their life that may not line up with scripture, that's the only way to love them. And that's true for all of us. If someone in your life affirms everything about you, regardless of your coloring, whatever, they don't love you very well because we all have stuff that does not deserve to be affirmed. Every single orientation today is disoriented. All of us are messed up. We're all sinners. We're all lost. But I do understand the sensitivities, guys. If you only knew how often and how fervently I have prayed for a loophole, because I love so many people who would identify in this camp that we're talking about right now, so many parents whose children would, I would give anything to be able to just scratch that part out, (laughs) Leviticus It's just not that simple. It seems to be consistent throughout the Bible from not just Leviticus, but the same teaching comes from Romans 1 and 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians. And Jesus himself affirms this sort of uh, Levitical ethic of marriage and coloring when he says that uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they will become one flesh. Biblically speaking, it seems as though the bonding together of two different bodies somehow 
reflects something orderly about God's creation that, that he loves. So what this means, as hard as it can be to reconcile with, is, is that we, we can't affirm everything when it comes to coloring. We can't affirm anything outside of coloring within a, a marriage between a man and a woman. I'm sorry. We just, we can't in good conscience. That's what that means. Here's, though, here's what it doesn't mean, if you're still listening. <laughs> Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we can't fling the doors wide open and genuinely, honestly receive and love anyone and everyone who wants to find community and be loved without being judged or cast aside. You can be a part of just about every part of this community, regardless of where you spent last night or who you spent last night with. God wants you here in the morning. God wants you with him every morning. God wants you in heaven with him forever. And I want that too. And the Story Church wants that too. And so it doesn't mean we have to be jerks about this or anything. It doesn't mean we have to treat some sins as though they're any worse than the stuff I'm carrying around every day. Listen, in the Bible, God is very consistent and clear regarding sin, but he's even more consistent and clearer regarding sinners, y'all. And for some reason, he loves us. He loves us. In spite of our chaos, in spite of the messes we create, he loves us. We have sinners of every stripe here at the story. We have people of all kinds of orientations and backgrounds here at the story, authentically, genuinely trying to work out our salvation in the grace and the truth of Jesus. And so what all of this means is that the Bible is our guide. What it doesn't mean is that any of us are the gatekeepers for the kingdom of heaven. And if that sits wrong with you and you have a problem with worshiping alongside people who live different than you or think different than you or vote different than you or color different than you, you come see me about it. Because I'll fight you. I'll fight you for this because I love them with all of my heart. And they belong here. I want them here and God wants them here. God wants all of us here, even in our brokenness, he wants us here. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the story of the whole Bible really is that even in the hard to understand, difficult to accept parts, we find the love of God shining through. The Bible is a love story. The more you understand it, it is. And the more you understand Leviticus, Leviticus is a love story within the love story about the God who is love. And his love comes with grace, but also with truth. So today, I just want to end this message by saying four words that honestly, for most of my adult life, I never imagined saying ever. Thank God for Leviticus. <laughs> Thank God for this book. It shows us something about his heart, which has always been this way, to bring his heart to bring order out of our chaos by way of forgiveness, by way of his sacrifice. He wants to do that with you today. When you let his love penetrate your heart, it changes you in ways you never thought possible. I've seen it myself. And you come to him humbly and let him have his way with you. 
Everything can change. Would you pray with me? Father, minister to our hearts right now. This is a tough teaching in this day and age. This is personal. This is real. Some ways it might be painful. Minister to us, Holy Spirit. Keep us in your orbit as you minister to us so that we don't further alienate ourselves from you or from one another. Lord, remind us before you remind us of somebody else's sin. Remind us of our own and our own need for repentance and redemption. Lord, help us to earnestly seek your will above our own and help us to seek your will in community, in this community, which is full of people who are not always like us, like me. We're struggling in different ways, all of us. But we want to earnestly and honestly seek you. We thank you for Jesus who makes it all possible. He is our bridge from chaos into order, from hell into heaven, from fear into love. We pray in his name. Amen.